the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation in this first hour with Carrie Holt. She is the co-author, along with two other mothers, of The Other Side of Special, navigating the messy, emotional, joy-filled life of a special needs mom, a great resource, and we'll talk with her later this hour. We'll also cover much of the day's uh, headline news. Well, spring may be officially here. It came earlier this week, even accompanied by several days of sunshine and temperatures in the 60s. But it turns out Portland isn't quite done with winter yet. A cold front is forecasted to arrive sometime today, drop temperatures by about 20 degrees. That's according to KGW meteorologist Rod Hill, setting up possible snow showers throughout the Willamette Valley on Friday and Saturday mornings. Western winds are expected to hold Portland, Salem, and other low-elevation sites above freezing. Uh, So while there could be some snow in the air at about 8.30 a.m. on Friday, it's unlikely to stick. Well, the worst-case scenario would be one to two inches of sticking snow if valley temperatures do get near freezing. Uh, But even then, the roads will likely still be mainly wet rather than icy. And with daytime temperatures in the 40s through the weekend, any snow that manages to stick around would quickly melt. Well, the Portland Bureau of Transportation issued a news release on Thursday warning of possible snow or even hail that could create hazardous travel conditions in the city on Friday and Saturday mornings. Any accumulation is likely to melt away quickly, the Bureau said, but drivers should still be cautious. Higher elevation areas could be another story. Colder air will make sticking snow an increasingly sure bet at altitudes above 500 feet. So residents on higher valley hills and the southwest Washington should prepare for periodic sticking snow from Thursday night through Sunday morning, with up to six inches of accumulation depending on elevation. The National Weather Service has issued winter storm warnings for the Coast Range and the Cascades through Saturday morning. The Cascades are expected to see 10 to to, uh, 20 inches of snow, with 6 to 12 feet in the coastal range areas above 1,000 feet and 2 to 6 inches at lower elevations. So nothing to sniff out. Sunday's weather is expected to be drier with fewer showers and snow levels will retreat to about 3,000 feet on Monday. So you'll recall last year we had snow in April, so I guess we shouldn't be altogether surprised. We may have some flurries over the next few days. Well, as Oregon struggles with one of the highest rates of homelessness in the nation, a longtime drug counselor says Portland is using a Band-Aid approach on the crisis. Portland will seek to improve the facilities of its homeless camps by replacing tents with sleeping pods, which the city can fund with state assistance. That's your tax money. Well, tents will work, says the uh, the mayor at a virtual town hall meeting yesterday or on Tuesday. But if we can also find a, a quick way to fund and deliver pods, uh, that would certainly be an improvement from um, his perspective. Well, Mayor Wheeler has focused on a plan 
uh, to create six large outdoor camps that will allow him to reduce the and ultimately ban homeless camping in all public spaces across Oregon. It would be uh, interesting to see what it looks like here uh, under that circumstance. Oregon Governor Tina Kotek, she warned that the city's camp wouldn't qualify for any of the program funding available in the $200 million emergency homelessness and housing spending plan as tents don't meet the uh, meet a number of habitability requirements the governor outlined. Well, a spokesperson for the governor confirmed, though, that sleeping pods could qualify for county funding. Uh, the governor's, or I should say the mayor's spokesperson, Cody Bauman, said that the city is exploring the pods in addition to other options. We hope to have a role in deciding where these funds are directed, Bowman said, again speaking for the mayor. We'll advocate that uh, investments go toward the mayor's temporary alternative shelter sites if eligible. The Portland City Council is set um, has set aside $27 million to construct and operate three of uh, the six tent sites for a year, including plans to hire homeless outreach workers to fund the city's office for um, that cleans up encampments, and the city plans to build an additional three camps within the next two years. Los Angeles has opened a few of these tiny uh, villages with a nonprofit uh, behind the construction of one of the villages, also involved in talks with Portland to build one there. Well, Mayor Wheeler, he admitted that the city alone can't finance the plan and requires help from the uh, regional government and state lawmakers. The current plan has around 82% support from city residents, but that comes with similar support for a citywide camping ban. Now, some homeless advocates argue that a mass encampment plan would prove an ineffective way uh, and use of money and resources uh, and could further harm or traumatize residents. And I'm not sure if uh, they're referring to residents of the city or residents in these um, encampments. But Portland has previously explored the use of pods with a Portland State University study published last year, finding that people who lived in the pods were largely satisfied with the accommodations, but that food security remained a significant issue. The study also found that neighbors living next to the pod-based villages grew less concerned about them over time, saying that most neighbors who reported concerns when they first learned the villages were being located in their neighborhood reported no longer having those concerns after living near the village. Now, we don't know after what period of time. Now, the oldest and longest-running community of tiny house or pod village in the, the uh, uh, country Rather, the county is uh, Dignity Village. It was established in 2000, has about 60 villagers at any given time. It costs around $33,000 per year and has 45 pods, according to the study. Todd Ferry, who's the lead writer and researcher on the report, argued that structure alone is not enough to deal with the problem and that the government needs to uh, think about the social infrastructure and its impacts. And while self-governance might not be possible in all cases, Thinking about how to build an agency can be hugely impactful, he suggests. Well, he acknowledged that the villages provoke a reaction from neighbors, but said that we shouldn't give so much attention to how neighbors feel about it, since many seem to change their opinion over time. Well, that's somewhat speculative, and it really depends on a number of factors. The fact that you've had one village in which neighbors eventually accepted it tells you something about that situation that may not apply across the board, and they should care about uh, what the uh, the neighbor's response is to it. So we'll see how this moves forward and in what uh, what form. We'll continue to follow 
that story. Well, Twitter was flooded Wednesday with AI-generated deepfake photos of former President Donald Trump resisting arrest and trying to run from police ahead of his potential New York indictment this week, which may or may not happen. And quite frankly, they were very, uh, very well done, very convincing. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. Also coming up this hour, a conversation with Carrie Holt, co-author of The Other Side of Special, navigating the messy, emotional, joy-filled life of a special needs mom. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Carrie Holt, co-author along with two other women who are mothers of special needs children. The other side of special, navigating the messy, emotional, joy-filled life of a special needs mom. Well, as I mentioned before the break, Twitter was flooded Wednesday with AI-generated deepfake photos of the former president resisting arrest and trying to run from police ahead of his potential New York indictment this week. In fact, they were so well done that some folks were uh, shopping them around as if they were accurate. They were real depictions. Well, the fabricated images, which have been viewed by more than four million appears to show the president um, yelling and fighting off at least five NYPD officers and others. He's depicted breaking free from cops and bolting as um, Melania and Donald Trump Jr. shout in protest of his arrest. Many of the de- disturbingly realistic looking images were shared widely by Twitter users who falsely claimed they were, in fact, legitimate. Well, the fakes come as a Manhattan grand jury is weighing whether to indict the president, the former president, in connection uh, to hush money paid to Stormy Daniels in 2016. Elliot Higgins, who's the founder of the investigative group um, Billing Cat, tweeted out the deep fakes and said they were created with the artificial intelligence text to image generator Mid Journey. Making pictures of Trump getting arrested while waiting for Trump's arrest, he tweeted uh, again. The images were made using the the uh, prompt Donald Trump falling over while getting arrested. Uh, the uh, Trump arrest image was really just casually showing both how good and bad Mid Journey was at rendering real scenes like the first image uh, has Trump with three legs and a police belt. Higgins said later, adding that he didn't think observers would take the shots seriously. But, of course, some were so anxious to see him in chains, they did take him seriously. I had assumed that people would realize Donald Trump has two legs, not three. But that appears not to have stopped some people passing them off as genuine, which highlights the lack of critical thinking skills in our educational system. Well, another deep fake created by the Twitter user known as O'Keefe Reborn also claims to show a mugshot of Trump while others show him behind bars in an orange jumpsuit. Trump has not been arrested. He's not been indicted. The Manhattan grand jury didn't reconvene Wednesday. They didn't reconvene today uh, due to a witness who was not available to appear. We're being told. Uh, but these images, while very con- uh, convincing, do suggest that it's possible to generate images of just about anything that could in fact be fake, but very convincing. Meanwhile, the Manhattan prosecutor on Thursday said Donald Trump misled people to expect he would be arrested this week and prompted fellow Republicans in Congress to interfere with a probe underway into his hush money payment. Well, on Saturday, the former president said that he would be arrested on Tuesday in the probe by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. On Monday, three Republican committee chair uh, chairmen in the U.S. House of Representatives went on the offensive against the attorney, um, the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, accusing 
him of abusing prosecutorial authority and seeking communications, documents and testimony from him. Well, as of yesterday, the grand jury hearing evidence in the Stormy Daniels case had yet to be issued and no indictment has been issued. And on Thursday, Bragg's office sent the committee chairman a letter uh, seen by Reuters. The letter said the chairman uh, accused uh, accusations rather only came after Donald Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged you to intervene. It confirmed that Bragg's office was investigating allegations that Donald Trump engaged in violations of New York state penal law. If indicted, the former president would be the first U.S face criminal charges. He served as president from 2017 to 21 and has mounted a third campaign for the White House while facing legal woes on several fronts. The former president also faces federal investigations stemming from his handling of government documents after leaving the White House and alleged attempts to overturn his 2020 election defeat, as well as a state level probe in Georgia into whether he lawfully sought to reverse the 2020 election results there. Uh, Trump has said he will uh, continue um, campaigning for president if charged with the crime, which is not unlawful. The response on Thursday from Bragg's office said the three Republican House committee chairmen had sought non-public information about a pending criminal investigation, which is confidential under state law. The letter's requests uh, are uh, an unlawful incursion into New York sovereignty, said the letter signed by the uh, uh, district attorney's uh, general office. Uh, Leslie Dubeck, congressional, uh, said that Congress cannot have any legitimate legislative task relating to the oversight of local prosecutors enforcing state law. Well, the grand jury made up of U.S. citizens residing in Manhattan convened in January. Its proceedings are not public and prosecutors are barred from discussing them. It wasn't uh, expected to meet again until next week at the earliest after media reports said it would not take up the case On Thursday, Michael Cohen, Trump's uh, former personal fixer and lawyer, has said he made the payment to Daniels days before the 2016 presidential election at Trump's direction. Daniels, a well-known, well, performer and director whose uh, real name is Stephanie Clifford, has said she received the money in exchange for keeping silent about an encounter she had with Trump in 2006. Trump has denied he ever had any affair with her and has called the payments a simple private transaction. Cohen pled guilty in 2018 to campaign finance law violations and other crimes related to the payment and received a prison sentence. Last week, he testified before the grand jury, which he believed generally to meet on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Well, we'll continue to follow that story if it develops. Turning Point USA's Cheyenne Kennedy uh, weighed in on a um, a subject having to do with a bill in Washington state that cut the English language requirement for police officers and firefighters under the equity agenda. Uh, some Democrats in Washington state are trying to eliminate the requirement for police officers and other public safety officials to be able to read and write in English. Senate Bill 5274 seeks to expand eligibility in certain civil service positions to allow lawful permanent residents to apply. In the current version passed by the state Senate on the 8th of this month, the English language requirement is removed altogether. The amended version of the bill summary now reads, removes the requirement that applicants uh, for certain civil service positions must be able to read and write in English. Well, the bill applies to applicants for the city's police force, city firefighters and the sheriff's office. Fish and wildlife officers are also included. I'm not sure how you conduct the work if you can't communicate with your 
uh, your fellows. But State Senator Javier Valdez was joined by 10 other Democrats to sponsor the bill. The Democrats um, argued it wouldn't uh, it would help address current job shortages and promote diversification of Washington's public service by encouraging and highlighting bilingualism and multilingualism. Well, if someone is bilingual, you presume they speak English. So I'm not entirely clear how it does that. But this latest uh, equity push neither makes sense nor serves the public. While some pretend you don't need to understand the English language, it's a necessary requirement for these positions, uh, one opponent argued. Rance brought up practical problems that would result from this change. If they cannot read English as a police officer, how will they be able to understand written policies or read information from the mobile data computer inside police vehicles? How do they prepare required reports if they cannot write in English? Calling it a transparent attempt to socially engineer diversity, Rance warned it would put unqualified people in their jobs and endanger public safety. And they may be equipped to do the job, but if you cannot communicate, that would be the disqualifier. It puts our safety at risk. These are public safety jobs. One misunderstood policy or incorrectly completed uh, form can harm people or lead to a criminal's release. Is that inevitably um, uh, truly worth this ridiculous attempt to force diversity? He questioned. Senate Bill 5274 is scheduled for executive session in the House Committee on Community Safety, Justice and Reentry next week. We'll follow that story should more information be made available. Up next, a conversation with Carrie Holt. She is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. She and her two co-authors are all special needs moms. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Mothers of children with special needs experience a wide a wide range of emotions, from fear to disappointment, guilt, grief, despair. They have a yearning for relief, but often feel isolated and inadequate as they look at the parenting experiences of others. Well, in the new book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom, Special Needs Moms, Amy Brown, Sarah Klein, and Carrie Holt, who will be my guest, help other moms and caregivers know the joy of God's presence, even amid sorrow and grief. Uh, They don't offer cliche solutions or pat answers. They understand the complex nature of parenting special needs children. They face the messy emotions of parenting that uh, are never fixed with humility, gratitude, and understanding. We have one of those three moms with us here today. Well, Amy Brown, Sarah Klein, and Carrie Holt are three mothers who have combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. They are the hosts of the podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. Well, Carrie, who joins us today, regularly speaks at conferences, hospitals, churches, and more about special needs mothering. Again, the title of their book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Carrie Holt, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I have a friend, I I just learned, she's expecting, so excited, she just learned that her child has Down syndrome and for her, the, the journey has begun. The expectations have been altered. And I'm so grateful for your book because I know it's going to be a, a helpful resource for her as she navigates these early days before she actually holds that child in her arms. Tell us a little bit about, um, about your background and about your family. 
Sure. So I have four children that range in age from 19 to 13. And our third son, um, who is 16 now, we were introduced into the world of special needs parenting through a prenatal diagnosis, similar to your friend. He was born with spina bifida and hydrocephalus, which is a lifelong permanently disabling uh, birth defect. And but we kind of took a road less traveled when he was about two and a half weeks old, where he went into respiratory failure. We ended up spending over two months in the hospital. And when he was three months old, we brought home this medically fragile baby with all these machines to keep him alive and a feeding pump. And we had nursing care in our home. And so that was kind of our introduction into the world of special needs parenting, my husband and I. What was like, uh, what is life like as a special needs parent? How does this experience change your life? And you've already kind of touched on that, but I, I hope you can kind of fill out that, fill in that, uh, that picture. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, when we first found out, we were just completely devastated. I mean, it was a 20 week ultrasound. We went in and, I just remember feeling like a lot of times we call that day like our D-Day, the diagnosis day. There's just this clear before and after of what we thought life was going to look like and then life completely changing. And it was it was devastating, but it was also it we just really had to rely on our faith (laughs) Um, that I mean, that was a big piece of that. And I just remember thinking. I I don't know how we're going to do this. We had, uh, at the time that my son was born, we had three boys, three and a half and under. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, normal parenting is hard when you have kids that close together and then put on top of that, running back and forth to the hospital. And he had surgery the day he was born. He had surgery four days later. And then we went back in. we spent a month in the ICU and it was just really dark. And sometimes, you know, we were facing the possibility of him not making it. And just, you learn how to live life one day at a time and sometimes one minute at a time, as I would watch the monitors and watch my son's breathing, because that was the main issue he had was he wasn't breathing on his own without machines. You mentioned you had other children, very young sons. Um, Your expectations had been one thing. You had an idea of what your life should look like, bringing another son into the world, only to be met with a vastly different reality. You mentioned that you learned to cling to God when that reality didn't line up with your plans and your expectations. How do you do that? And was there a, a season in which you, first of all, just questioned God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why us? How did you navigate that? And what does it mean that you clung to God during this, especially the early days? Sure. So I would say that for me personally, I know this has not been the experience of my co-host Sarah, but I, for me personally, um, I didn't, I did not question my faith in, in those moments, partly because I can, I can tend to be kind of a very black and white person. And so, and I was raised in a Christian home. So I kind of knew, okay, you know, the Bible tells us we're going to experience trials. And this is, this is one of those trials. Now I can tell you though, that one, one of the things that helped me and has helped me since is 
learning how to grieve and not stuff down the grief and the sadness and the sorrow and being okay with taking those emotions to God and saying, okay, God, I can't handle this. This is really difficult. We're facing more days in the hospital and we're not even sure if our son's going to make it. And I can remember reading the scriptures in Matthew that talk about don't take thought for tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. And I I remember feeling like I was praying and asking the Lord, what am I going to do? And how are we going to handle this? And who's going to take care of our other boys? And what are these days going to look like? And, and he just, he just said to me, I, I could return tomorrow. I, and you would be worrying for nothing. You need to put it in my hands and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So that's probably one practical way with me. Just, I tend to be a long-term planner. And so I wanted to know what is this going to look like in five years and 10 years? What is this, you know, how are we going to handle all of this with our three children? And the Lord said, let's just focus on today. And another thing that I, that really helped me too is finding the gratitude and Amy, Amy calls them gifts, but it was finding the gratitude and keeping a journal. So I kept a daily journal of everything that was going on and then started to look for just the small ways that God was providing. And it was simple things like not paying for parking at the hospital Our hospital in our town. I live in Ohio uh, requires parking, you know, every time you leave and it, it's not a ton of money, but you know, we were a young family and, but it was just those kinds of things where I look back and I look at that list and go, wow, God, you were so good. And you carried us through so, so much. Those little things, you were not uh, obviously parenting this, um, this disabled son alone. You had your husband who was parenting with you and then your sons, what impact uh, did this, uh, revelation have on your on your family on your husband who also had expectations before the diagnosis and your sons who were expecting another brother who would be just like they are how did that how did that work in the family dynamic sure so i think for my husband what's interesting is he he can he's definitely my like he's just real even keel and he just kind of takes life as it comes and the day we walked out to the car after I saw my um, OBGYN, you know, my baby doctor while I was still pregnant, and I'm crying, and he looked at me and he said, why not us? Hmm. And I thought, you're crazy. <laughs> and But he said, Carrie, we have God, and we have our faith, and we have our church, and we have our family. Why not us? Because we have everything we need to walk through this journey. And so as far as our boys, at least at that, in that time, they were pretty much protected by a lot of it, just from their, you know, naivety being young and things like that. I would say through the years, one of the things that I have loved about our family and our, and our kids, and we ended up having a daughter after our son with special needs. Um, she's three years younger. Um, is that they just treat our son Toby like he's a normal kid. You know, they fight with him. They push his wheelchair around. They, they When they were little, they used to ride his power chair places. And, you know, we would go do things. And it was it's just always been a normal, 
a normal thing for them. And, you know, I know that they have had some struggles of like, you know, all the focus is on top of my son has had 61 surgeries mm-hmm. um, throughout his life. And so we've spent a lot of time in the hospital and, you know, he's medically fragile and things like that. And, you know, it's just, I think one of the biggest things for special needs parents and families is just balancing, uh, you know, your child's kids needs and your marriage and then your other kids, if you have other children and learning to say, you know what, I have to give what I can give. I still need to take care of myself and I have to leave the outcome in God's hands, just like the boy with the five loaves and two fishes, just like him turning water into wine. I just have to take my water to him and say, okay, God, this is what you've asked me to be faithful with. I'm going to be faithful and you're going to have to make it into something beautiful because I can't do it all. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with Carrie Holt. She's the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Carrie Holt. She is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. She, along with her two other co-authors, Amy Brown and Sarah Klein, are three mothers who have a combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. And they're the hosts of the podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about caretaker fatigue, because I can imagine that the time that's required to care for one special needs child while at the same time raising three other boys has to be an ominous task. Uh, talk a bit about fatigue and how you manage just the sheer volume of time and attention required to to take care. Yeah, so it's definitely real and it's it. One of the things, you know, when you're in the middle of crisis after crisis, you don't realize the toll that it's taking on your body. And uh, for the last kind of year and a half, we've had a bit of calm in our life. We haven't been in the hospital. And honestly, that is when some of the just the traumas and the it, it was really when I started to realize how fatigued I really was because I realized just there are just, you know, people in my life would be experiencing cancer or different things. And really all I could do was pray for them because I did not have, I, there are times I have just have not had the capability mm-hmm. to feel like I want to do all the things I want to do and serve the people I want to serve. And so I think in the early days it meant just saying no to things and, and being okay with that, being okay with saying no to, you know, I can't be, I can't serve at mops at church or I can't do this uh, because my main focus is I want to have a healthy marriage and I want to, you know, I, I don't want to lose that. And I want to, my main ministry is my kids. And so at the same time, it, it is this balance of, and thankfully we have had help because we've had nursing care in our home and that has helped, but that, that brings in a whole nother thing to manage um, on different levels. But 
it, I, you just have to learn how to say, okay, I'm going to release this to mm-hmm. someone else's, uh, you know, grasp, whether it's my husband's going to take care of this medical care tonight. And even if he doesn't do it exactly the way I would do it, it's okay. He's still taking care of him or this neighbor or this friend is going to run our kid to soccer practice while our son's in the hospital. And that's okay. And so you, you, you definitely have to learn that you just, you cannot do it all. And, and that it, it, it is okay to say no. And, and honestly, that just requires, at least for me, it has required just walking with Jesus and saying, what do you want me to handle today? Like, what, what are you asking me? Because the truth is, I think sometimes we discount the fact that caring for our kids is serving Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, it's serving God and the little tasks and the ways that I can show my kids that I love them and show my son God's love and that he's unconditionally loved and cared for, especially my son with special needs. He needs all the care uh, sometimes. That's the best way that I can show God's love to him and show others just that hope and that where our strength is coming from. Well, let me ask you, because you made reference to it, how this kind of life as a special needs mom has impacted your devotional life. I know for many of us, when we are overwhelmed and and the responsibility uh, is all consuming, our devotional life tends to wane. You seem to suggest that without clinging to Jesus and having that strength that you wouldn't be able to do what you do in in raising your disabled son as well as the three uh, other sons. Well, I mean, I would be lying if I said, you know, I'm always in the word every day, especially, uh, you know, I can honestly say there were times when he was in the hospital where I felt like I couldn't even pray or it was just one word prayers because if I opened myself up to the emotion of getting, you know, really into God's word or just feeling all the feelings when I had to make all the decisions and cope with all that stuff, I just couldn't open myself up to all of the emotions of, you know, just that piece of it because we were just kind of in survival mode, Mm -hmm. making decisions. I had to think clearly, you know, I couldn't have emotions necessarily clouding my judgment. Um, But I will say, I I think one of the things I've learned along the way is, again, it's just those small little things we can do. It's opening, uh, you know, opening your eyes in the morning and say, Lord, be with me today. Your mercies are new every morning. Show me, uh, focus on one scripture. It's also been learning just prayers of release of saying, God, these are all the things that I'm worried about today. These are all the things I'm caring for. And it might not even be things that are going wrong. It's just the stuff you have to take care of, right? Mm-hmm. As a mom. Yeah. And, but Lord, I release this to you because I know it's yours. And I think it's just, um, and then when there've been times when it's calmer, then I can, you know, spend some time in heavy Bible study or, you know, do the different things that I've done or, you know, my husband, and I have loved life groups or things at church. And, um, so I think it looks differently, honestly, just where you're at. But I think the key is just faithfulness and consistency and not discounting all the little drops of truth that you're pouring into, whether it's listening to a podcast or listening to the Bible on the app or a radio show or something that can continually feed your soul. That's the key is continually feeding your soul. I know for um, for mothers who are not 
uh, parenting disabled children, for other family and friends um, uh, who are not uh, raising special needs children. How do you support your um, your family? How do you support your friends who are in this very um, challenging season of life? What's the best way to come alongside and uh, offer genuine support and help? So I think one of the things that it's important to understand is that parents who have children with special needs are, they have chronic grief. So we are always living in a grieving cycle and it doesn't necessarily go away. And especially if the caregiving situation is going to be for the duration of the child's life. I, I think that is really, it was very key for me to grasp as, as a mom. And I, and I am constantly sharing and teaching about this to family and friends and other people, because there are moments along the journey where you think, Oh, they should just get over that. Well, but my son is 16 now and he's not getting his driver's license like everybody else's mm. kids are. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He doesn't have, he could drive an adaptive car, but he doesn't have those capabilities at this point yet. And he may never. And so I'm grieving watching all of these things happen. So I think that's one thing is just understanding that we don't just get past it. It just looks differently throughout the journey. And then secondly, I think it's just being willing to step in and see and see us to step in uh, to to help and to be willing to get down and know our kids and, and know our child with special needs and see them as a person and not just a disability label. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really key. And also being willing to say, you know what? I, I'm not just going to say, how can I help you? Or just let me know if you need help. Because honestly, we're not going to ask unless we're really desperate for the most part. It's very hard for us to ask because in some ways we're in a, a constant state of needing, right? Of, of bringing in help or whatever that might be. Um, but to say, hey, I went into the grocery store this week and I know you have had a rough week. Can I pick something up for you? Or I'm going to bring you a meal next week. What day works? Mm, Just yeah, yeah. Giving, yeah, giving kind of like that either or choice. Like yeah. you can pick Tuesday or Thursday. What I'm going to do this. What, what do you want me to do? Be specific. We need to take a break here at the top of the hour, but we will continue this conversation. Again, we're talking with the co-author of a very important book, The Other Side of Special. Uh, my guest, Carrie Holt, will be back in just a few moments. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show as we continue a conversation I began in the previous hour. By the way, if you missed the start of this conversation, you can go to the podcast. Talking with Carrie Holt, she is the co-author of The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Her co-authors, Amy Brown and Sarah Klein, are three mothers who have a combined experience of over 30 years of raising children with physical, medical, mental, and emotional special needs. And they're the hosts of the podcast take heart special moms again the title of the book the other side of special just before the break we were talking about how family and friends uh can can help and support uh, you in your efforts to raise your your son your special needs son Uh, but you also write about ways the church unknowingly tells special needs families that they're unwelcome it's not intentional but it is um 
it is present. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it may be surprising to to some of us. Yeah, so I think one of the ways that this happens is just when there's a lack of awareness, um, kind of from the leadership down of one of the statistics that we looked up, we actually did a podcast on this, and the the community of families that have children with disabilities and the disabled community can actually be considered an unreached people group. Mm-hmm. Just the percentages of them that are in church um, is, is staggering. It's just staggeringly low. And I think part of that is because accessibility, um, just physical accessibility, uh, our churches don't fall under the same rules. Uh, usually with ADA laws and compliance and things like that. And so sometimes I think it's just this lack of like, we, we don't know, we're afraid. I think it's fear. We're afraid uh, of what it's going to ask, what it might require of us financially or from a volunteer standpoint. And, and so there's just not a mentality of let's serve these families. They need to be served. They need help. And, and we want to help them. And so, and then I think another thing too is I, sometimes it's just segmented to one section of the church. Like a church might have a special needs ministry and it's going really well, but it's only, it, the entire staff really isn't on board. They're not educated. They're not um advocating or even understanding where these families are coming from and how much they need the gospel, just like uh, other people Mm -hmm. in the church and they need help and support. And for instance, um, we're familiar with a ministry that's here local to where I live, where uh, she provides video instruction for all of the children's leaders, not just the leaders who are working maybe as a buddy or that type of thing, but it's actually equipping every person who's volunteering in the children's ministry about if you have a child that comes in and, uh, you know, Amy, my co-host, her kids have the behavioral disabilities and they're invisible sometimes because they have adoption trauma and they have attachment issues. And maybe that kid isn't acting that way just because they're being naughty. They have real things that have happened to them in their life. And, and, but this is a strategy of how you can help them and there's trainings and things out there. And I think the other part two of this is just not using the families who are in your church as resources. Uh, Sarah shares a story of how, and I love this, uh, where she lives in her church, they had a day where they had all the pastors and all the staff navigate the building in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, okay, we're going to have an event, you know, on the lawn. Well, how do you get to the restroom? How do you get through the line to get food? Uh, how do you even open the doors to the church if there's not a button? Because they're so heavy. And I, it's just things like that where I think it's really important for staff to say, you know what, we need to go to these families and ask them, what do they need? And they'll tell you. And we, and for the most part, we understand you can't do it all. Like we, we totally get that. But I think when we, when they understand, families like ours understand that we're seen and that you want us there. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really important. 
Oh, that's so, so good. Again, we're talking about the book, The Other Side of Special, which is a great resource for those who are special needs moms and those of us who want to care for them and love them and their families uh, well. You offer in the book practical wisdom on complex medical needs, invisible uh, disabilities, adoption, terminal and rare diagnosis and more. Talk a little bit about some of the medical needs and invisible disabilities that we might just overlook out of ignorance, but want desperately to be aware of so that we can reflect the heart of Christ toward everyone um, that that's in our neighborhood or in our church or in our family. Yeah, so one of the things, especially with the invisible disabilities, is, is again, going back to that uh, kids who, so as a church, as the church, the body of Christ in general, we're always encouraging families to adopt, right? And and we're called to adopt and we're called to minister to the widows and orphans. And then when families bring children in and they're dealing with trauma and there's been so much research that's come out in recent years and they don't attach to their main caregiver because they're not able to, their brain doesn't allow them to, and then they're misbehaving and they might even be stealing or, or doing different types of behavior then we shun them and turn them away and think it's bad parenting. And I think it's really important. Um, and Amy just kind of shares her experiences with mm-hmm. that in the book and the emotions that she went through and how much shame and judgment there is there. Um, and, and just how important it is uh, to just for people to understand that just because a child doesn't look like they need accommodations and understanding and empathy. They they probably do. And it's always better to ask questions instead of making assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Again, the other side of special is the title of the book we're talking about. And as I mentioned, uh, she and her two co-authors are also the hosts of a podcast, Take Heart, Special Moms. I know loneliness is an issue that you deal with. We're going to take a break here in a moment. But when we come back, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, loneliness, how you and your co-authors have dealt with it that might also help others who are, are listening in the same or similar situation. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're talking about the book, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a Special Needs Mom. Founders of Take Heart Special Moms, these three uh, authors, they share a wide range of experiences. Amy began her journey through adoption, hidden disabilities, and mental health issues. Carrie's son was permanently diagnosed, or I should say prenatally diagnosed, with a permanently disabling condition and became medically fragile after birth, facing over 60 surgeries throughout his lifetime. So far. Sarah's son received a terminal diagnosis at age nine, and she and her family members are determined not to let the diagnosis define the quality of their lives. And while the experiences of special needs uh, moms uh, and those who support them will differ, uh, this book will help readers take just one step toward growing in faith, hope, joy, and connection. And as I mentioned, these uh, three are also the hosts of a podcast I would highly recommend, um, Take Heart, Special Moms. Uh, just before the break, I asked you about loneliness, and um, it's a, a real big factor for special needs mom. What encouragement can you offer to mothers experiencing loneliness in, under these circumstances? Yeah, so loneliness is just, it it's, can be 
I think part of the reason why loneliness is so difficult is because you feel it can be isolating because all of a sudden you feel like you're, you're, you're in the same group of other moms who are having babies or raising kids. And then you're in a different category. You have a different label. And I remember fighting it and saying, I don't want to have that title. I don't want to have that identity. And so you can tend to draw away from people. Mm-hmm. So, but one of the ways that we talk about in the book and that Sarah and Amy and I have experienced is I think it's really important to, I think oftentimes when we're lonely, we try to look around and find someone else who looks like us, acts like us, thinks like us. And in reality, you know, that, that person really isn't out there. And I think what's important is to find the common ground. And that's one of the reasons why we wrote the book is because the three of us met only just about three years ago through a writing group. And as we were sharing our stories and talking, we realized that the things we had in common were the emotions and uh, having to make accommodations and having to advocate. So the, even though our child's diagnoses are not the same, the things we're going through, the feelings that we're feeling, the struggles, um, sometimes the guilt and the shame and all that kind of stuff that, that we're experiencing is common. So I think it's really important to find um, common ground. I think uh, the first thing to do is to pray for a friend. I, I know mm-hmm. that sounds very simple and sometimes trite, but I, I've used it in my life and, and God has provided different people along the way. And sometimes, you know, I have met people at the zoo I just out in the community. And I think it's sometimes just our posture of being approachable for people to come talk to us and ask us questions and, uh, you know, say, Hey, I, I noticed your son is in a wheelchair. Well, I have, I have a child at home too with a wheelchair. Can we talk? Let's, let's have a conversation because I know that you probably have some idea of what I'm, what I'm going through. Um, and, and to, just to keep searching for that community and I also want to encourage whoever's listening is sometimes you have to create that community. And I know that's really hard when you're a caregiver and parenting and everything, but maybe find somebody at church. Uh, sometimes children's hospitals have social workers that can help you connect with other parents and, and build a community, whether it's online or in person. Thankfully, there are some good things that have come out of social communities. I met one of my closest friends through a Yahoo group like 15 years ago and this is in a different state and it's just been a beautiful friendship that we've developed. So that's an important element to have some community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, and our time is short, but a little bit about advocacy and what it means to adv- advocate for a child with special needs? Yeah. So real quick, um, I think um, when you're advocating for your child, I always think of speaking truth and love Um It's very important for us to um, have wisdom and know, you know, not every person deserves your time. If somebody's not public and they're making comments about your kids, they don't, they don't deserve you to, you know, they don't deserve your time for you to go and explain and, and all that kind of stuff. Just, just walk away and talk to your child and reaffirm them and things like that. If you're in a medical situation or a school situation, I think it's important to know what you need, be clear, 
and but also speak the truth in love. When you share a lot of grace and you also try to understand the shoes they're coming from, um, I think usually uh, compromise and collaboration and community can happen. Oh, that's so good. I want to ask um, for our audience sake how they can connect with you. We mentioned the podcast and also get the book, The Other Side of Special, for themselves as special needs parents or for uh, those who desire to be a better support for, friend of, and understand those um, who do have special needs children. Sure. So you can find us at our website, which is TakeHeartSpecialMoms.com. We have a book page on there. The book's found at Amazon. It's pre-ordered right now. It's coming out May 9th. And all of our individual websites are linked through the Take Our Special Moms website. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and help us to have a better understanding and uh, to provide a resource for special needs moms and dads uh, in our listening audience. Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Georgine. Appreciate it. Again, Carrie Holt is the co-author along with her two friends, The Other Side of Special, Navigating the Messy, Emotional, Joy-Filled Life of a special needs mom, the book uh, out in May, but they are doing pre-orders. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a break here in a, in a moment. We're going to take a look back at some of the headline news of the day. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are questions without answers about Ukraine. So says Victor Davis Hansen. I think he may be on to something. He writes that Ukrainians and many Europeans and Americans are defining an envisioned Ukrainian victory with the complete expulsion of all Russia from the 2013 borders. Or as a Ukrainian national security chief put it, the war ends with Ukrainian tanks in Red Square. But mysterious uh, mysteries rather remain about these ambitions and this agenda. What would that goal entail? Well, giving Ukraine American F-16s to strike bases and uh, depots in Mother Russia, the gifting of a thousand M1 Abrams tanks, using American harpoon missiles to sink the Russian Black Sea fleet, well, a huge arsenal that would guarantee total victory rather than not losing. Well, Russia's cruel strategy is to grind down Ukraine and turn its eastern regions into a Verdun-like deathscape. So is a brave Ukraine really winning the war when it loses about 0.6 soldiers for every Russian it kills? Well, Russia's, um, Russia plans to leverage its extra 100 million people, its 10 times larger economy, and its 30 times larger territory to pulverize Ukraine and tire its Western patrons, whatever the cost to Russia. Yet why were only a few in past administrations calling for a joint Western effort to expel Putin's forces from the borderlands and Crimea captured in 2014. Why are Putin's 2014 invasions not seen as urgent, uh, rectifiable crimes of aggression in 2022, but were not regarding as um, reparable during the prior eight years? Is the United States economically capable or politically unified or socially stable enough to wage a huge proxy war on the frontiers of a nuclear Russia? During the last comparable multi-billion dollar military effort, the first Gulf War in 1990 to 1991 and the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the ratio of American debt to GDP was respectively 40 to 50 percent. Today, it hovers at nearly three times that figure at 129 percent, given some 33 billion dollars in accumulated debt. 
Currently, the American economy is entering a stagflationary crisis. Banking, real estate, financial sectors seem on the brink of imploding, especially after the near-record multi-billion-dollar collapse of Sam Bankman-Freedom, Freed's FTX, and the meltdowns of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. These are sobering considerations. Around 7 million illegal entries have occurred across the southern border since January of 2021 alone. Millions of new impoverished foreign nationals tax social services, spike crime, strain relations with an increasingly antagonistic Mexican president. And emboldened Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, now brags that 40 million of his countrymen have cumulatively crossed the border, many illegally. He urges them to vote for Democratic candidates to ensure more open borders. Last year, over 100,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses. Most of the deaths were attributable to Mexican cartels brazenly exporting fentanyl across the open border. Nearly a million Americans have likely died of such overdoses since 2000, more than double the number of fatalities in World War II. Given its shell-shocked inner cities and toxic downtowns, America is beginning to resemble mid-19th century England that sent forces all over its global empire while novelist Charles Dickens chronicled the misery and poverty at the imperial core of London. Is the Ukrainian war also creating the most dangerous anti-American alliance since World War II? China is buying cheap Russian oil while stealthily supplying its weapons. India, normally a rock-solid democratic ally, keeps buying both banned Russian oil and armaments. Most of the major countries in South America have not joined the sanctions. Clients like nuclear North Korea and soon-to-be nuclear Iran are empowered by overt help from Russia. NATO member Turkey and once-allied Saudi Arabia appear now friendlier to Iran, friendlier to China, and friendlier to Russia than they are to America. In terms of combined oil reserves uh, and nukes and some other munitions around the, uh, around the globe and GDP, this new loose coalition of apparent anti-Americans seem more powerful than the U.S. and its squabbling friends in Europe. Why were those now calling for a veritable blank check for Ukraine, formerly quiet when the U.S. fled in humiliation from Afghanistan? Why were they mostly silent when an appeasing President Joe Biden begged Russian President Vladimir Putin at least to spare some U.S. targets on his otherwise extensive anti-American cyber war hit list? Or why were they indifferent when Biden said uh, he would have fewer objections if Putin anticipated um, his uh, conflict in Ukraine, that it would be minor? Or why were they not so eager for confrontation when Putin earlier acquired the eastern Ukrainian borderlands and Crimea in 2014 in the first place? Or why so subdued when the U.S. in 2015-16 refused to sell Ukrainian offensive weapons? Why does the U.S. discount the serial and ascending nuclear threats from Russia, but we remain careful not to antagonize China? After all, China sent a spy balloon brazenly across the U.S. to surveil and spy on American strategic locations. And why is the administration so quiet about it? Um, it's likely leak of an engineered deadly COVID-19 virus from a Chinese virology lab that killed a million Americans. Well, these are Ukrainian war-related questions that never seem to be answered, much less asked. 
but should be as the uh, carnage rises and the nuclear threshold falls. These are very insightful and sobering questions that Victor Davis Hansen suggests are essential to our move forward. Well, last week, uh, Nate Jackson took a hard look at the nation's fentanyl crisis, which is wiping out the equivalent of an airliner's worth of Americans every day. As I mentioned earlier, Mexican President uh, Obrador wrote uh, about that. Nate uh, Jackson wrote, says the whole thing is our problem, not his. Here we do not produce fentanyl and we do not have consumption of fentanyl, he claimed last week. Why don't the Americans take care of the problem, uh, the problem of social decay? Well, Lopez Arbador, uh, let's call him AMLO for short, is wrong about the production sources of fentanyl, but he isn't far off about how lucrative a market the U.S. has become for Mexico's deadly supply of opioids. And perhaps his swipe at our nation's social decay demands a better answer than the one he attempted to provide while blaming the GOP for the lack of respect for Mexico's sovereignty. There's a lot of uh, disintegration of families. There's a lot of individualism. There's a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs and embraces, said the president of Mexico. That is why they should be dedicating funds to address the causes. But he, uh, the, the cause isn't f- uh, fixable with taxpayer money. In fact, that's part of how we got here in the first place, with family disintegration that began when the great society, government programs, replaced the breadwinning father. Freed of the responsibility of providing for and raising a child, too many men abandoned their post, leaving the mothers to fend for themselves and often relegating children to be raised by a string of relatives, daycare providers and teachers while those moms were forced to go to uh, to work. The old saying that idle hands are the devil's workshop has manifested itself in three generations that have taken advantage of our prosperity to fill in those empty spaces with casual physical relationships and consumption of alcohol and illicit drugs, a crutch to take away both physical and mental pain. Sadly, too many middle-aged men who used to be proud physical laborers now collect government disability checks. These uh, This serves, rather, as an adequate crutch until one day they take the wrong pill, a fatal pill, courtesy of China and Mexico, In the wake of the pandemic, fentanyl overdoses, not COVID-19, became the leading cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 45, according to the CDC. But the good news is that restoring a culture with love and brotherhood doesn't have to cost a thing. Many thousands of Americans, with the assistance of caring counselors, have turned themselves away from opioid and alcohol addiction, finding success after the struggle. More encouragement comes from seeing young people gather at churches in a nationwide revival, looking for an uplifting spiritual method of filling the hole in their hearts and the vacuum in their spirits. If you know someone who's thirsty for a good spiritual devotion, you might want to guide them in that direction. A couple of generations ago, we as Americans were given a simple piece of advice. Just say no to drugs. We should have listened then. but We can still take that advice now you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll be back in a moment to wrap things up you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey welcome back you're listening to the final segment of the georgine rice show well it's happening everywhere lawmakers are pushing to ban secret student pronoun changes and to keep parents involved Needless to say, the legislation is very controversial. Well, a U.S. lawmaker introduced legislation to Congress on Wednesday that would require schools to receive parental permission before a student changes their pronouns. 
a response to a lawsuit by a parent whose daughter allegedly began to secretly transition at a California school. Well, the Prohibiting Parental Secrecy Policies in Schools Act, sponsored by Representative Doug LaMalfa, Republican out of California, and yes, there are a few there, would withhold federal funding from schools if they do not implement policies that require parental permission before a student can change their name or pronouns at school. Well, the legislation was drafted as a response to the lawsuit by Aurora Regino, who's suing Chico Unified School District after a counselor allegedly helped her daughter secretly trans, uh, transition genders, um, she told the uh, Daily Caller News Foundation. Regino came and talked to my uh, my team. My heart went out to her as we talked, uh, LaMalfa says, uh, again from the Daily Caller News Foundation. This is her daughter, and the school system is trying to align things in such a way that kids shouldn't trust their parents. Well, who should they trust? Nine to five bureaucrats or the person that's with them seven days a week otherwise? It puts a wedge between kids and their parents, and that's pretty messed up. And by the way, I mentioned earlier this week there's a piece of legislation in the Oregon legislature uh, which would um, strip parents of their parental authority as well. In fact, you would have to get a child's permission before a parent could be informed about a controversial decision that he or she might want to make, and that would include an abortion. Well, the Center for American Liberty filed a lawsuit on behalf of Regino in January after she found out that a school counselor had allegedly been helping her 10-year-old daughter transition genders, convincing the girl to use he-him pronouns and a male name at school. Well, the counselor, whom Regino never met, had allegedly advised her daughter that she was a boy and to come out to other people before telling her mother. Well, California Department of Education uh, guidance prohibits school districts from telling parents, prohibits them from telling parents if their child has changed their name or pronouns at school, a policy that Chico Unified School District has adopted. And again, this is what's being considered in the Oregon legislature now. I spent a lot of time within our own district trying to plead with them to stop uh, what they were doing. That is, uh, it was actually harmful to my daughter. Uh, what they uh, what they did not beneficial. This mother says I was just trying to plead with them to make sure that this didn't happen to another child, that it was actually very harmful, that she was just having some distress or some confusion and that she didn't even understand what being transgender meant or what it would entail or even come out and transition. She didn't know the repercussions or the challenges that she would have to face. End quote. From the mother. In response to the lawsuit, Chico Unified School District noted that it cannot discuss ongoing legal matters, but will answer any questions that parents have regarding the district's policies and curriculum. Not about the student, the daughter in particular, but their general policies. In regard to the lawsuit, we value our community and will thoroughly review and investigate any claims, the school district said in a statement to the outlet. As you know, Chico Unified continues to focus on family engagement. Oh, really? And works hard to maintain open and transparent communication. Clearly not. We highly value the relationships our families have built with their schools, end quote. Well, in addition to the federal legislation, California State Representative Bill uh, S. Elise, a uh, Republican, introduced legislation last week in response to this, the um, suit that would give public school administration three days to alert parents in writing if their child is changing their name and pronouns. The legislation would also require school districts to notify parents if their child is joining a sports team or using a bathroom or locker room that does not correspond with their biological sex. 
There are two bills currently pending at the state and federal level to address this issue. Eric Sell, the attorney for this mother, concerned about her 10-year-old daughter. Frankly, this is incredibly important legislation because this is happening across the country. It's happening in California and Maine. It's happening in Idaho. It's happening everywhere. There's this notion out there that kids need these safe spaces to adopt these new gender identities and that schools should provide the safe space for them and keep it all secret from parents. But these schools are playing with fire. This is really dangerous stuff, end quote. Well, in Maine, a mom is demanding an investigation into a school district that allegedly hid her 13-year-old daughter's gender transition and secretly provided the child with multiple chest binders, a tool used to flatten breasts because the child is a girl. Well, Parents Defending Education, a group advocating for parental rights in education, is suing an Idaho school district that adopted a transgender and students nonconforming to gender role stereotypes policy in August that allows students to hide their gender transitions from their parents. LaMalfa expects the Prohibiting Parental Secrecy Policies in Schools Act to pass the U.S. House of Representatives this year. He told the Daily Caller News Foundation, the U.S. Senate, however, has a Democrat majority, as does the California House and Senate, where the legislation is opposed, according to local channel KRCR News. All of these bills are attacks on trans kids and LGBTQ kids in general and are going to lead to violence against these kids and increased risk of suicide. So this is the this is the counterweight to informing and involving parents in these decisions that they cannot be trusted. And it's going to explode into uh, what is in the uh, uh, least best interest of these children. They're suggesting to pass a law that a school would uh, out these kids before they're ready to tell their parents this is despicable because parents apparently are the enemy to out the kids. And they want the kids to come out in school but to out in front of them, out them in front of their parents is the danger. That's a quote from State Senator Scott Weiner, a Democrat speaking to the uh, uh, the media outlet about the introduced legislation. These kids will, kids will come out to their parents when they're ready to come out to their parents, and it's none of anyone else's business when they decide to come out. Well, it is apparently someone else's business because the schools are orchestrating those decisions and informing the kids about how to go about it. House Republicans have also introduced a piece of legislation aimed at increasing parental rights within the nation's classrooms. The legislation would require school districts to provide parents with the curriculum and reading materials and the system's budget and spending plan. Before this happened to my daughter and our family, I wouldn't have believed that this would happen, especially at the elementary school level. Again, the daughter is 10. Regino told the Daily Caller News Foundation, so I think it's very important to figure out ways to let parents know what's going on. That's where I stand. Well, the uh, Chico Unified School District didn't respond to the story, to the challenge, to the legislation, but the battle continues. And this is the trend that we're seeing all across the country, where parents increasingly cannot be trusted with the full uh, disclosure on their, their children, and children are being advised uh, not to involve their parents because clearly their parents don't have their best interest in mind. They are essentially a danger, and the Monday through Friday bureaucrats know best. Uh, this is a dangerous trend, and again, there's legislation in the Oregon legislature that would do the same right here in this state. Well, we are just about out of time. I do want to thank uh, James Blind for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.